You're listening to the Public Health Perspectives Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Public Health Perspectives, a podcast series targeted towards strengthening the future public health workforce. We will explore the narratives of public health care professionals and gain insight on career paths that shape the profession. And now your host, Camilla Singletary. Hi, welcome to another episode of Public Health Perspectives. Today we have Dr. Allison Chamberlain on the show. Dr. Chamberlain contributed to a case study in JPHMP's 21 public health case studies on policy and administration. Her work surrounded the 2015 Legionnaires outbreak in New York City. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, just to start, for those that don't know much about the disease, can you give a very brief description of what Legionnaires disease is? Sure. Legionnaire's disease is a type of pneumonia that's caused by a bacteria, Nella, um, pneumophila mainly, and it uh, is found in sort of warm, stagnant freshwater sources. So it can proliferate and thrive in certain types of plumbing situations, and it becomes a problem when it is aerosolized and people breathe it in. That's how it can get into people's lungs. And it's most concerning for um, folks over the age of 50 or anyone who has um, an immunocompromised immune system and and others who might have some underlying respiratory health issues. Um, But it can be very problematic and and cause a really dangerous type of pneumonia that can lead to death even in some cases. And so what was your uh, primary role on the project? Sure. So I, as, as you probably know, I work at Emory University, which is in Atlanta, so we're not really that close to New York City, but we have done some research here in the Center for Public Health Preparedness and Research on Legionnaire's disease over the past 10 or so years. And um, Dr. Novick had uh, approached me to see if I would be interested in potentially writing a case study on the uh, New York City outbreak, and, and we had agreed that that would be a, a good topic to focus on, and so I ended up leading our team's efforts to go up to the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and conduct interviews with some of the public health department staff who were intimately involved in that outbreak response and learn from their perspective what it entailed to investigate that particular outbreak and um, and the public health department's response during that time. So it was uh, it would involved a lot of um, a lot of, involved travel to New York and, and talking with those folks. And, and writing up um, in a case study format the events of that particular outbreak. And so I guess this kind of segues into it. Um, I know there was that scan initially, which uh, which kind of, you know, took a look at diseases that were in a particular place at a particular time, those, those clusters of diseases. And then later the incident command system was used. And so it sounds like you were uh, more of part of the incident command system because I know they form partnerships with a lot of different sectors in public health, especially to get the information out to the community about the disease and, you know, some of the preventive steps they could take to avoid it. So I actually was not involved in the outbreak response or the incident command system at all. I was sort of a complete external reviewer of this whole enterprise. So I, I came in about, gosh, a year after maybe they had had, had the outbreak to do these interviews. So this is, it had already passed, and I was coming into the health department to ask questions about how the response 
went for the purpose of developing the case study. And so for those of the, that may not be familiar, SATSCAN is an epidemiologic um, surveillance tool that health departments across the country can use. And at the time, the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene um, had adopted that particular surveillance system to and, and tailored it for their purposes to help them identify might be concerning clusters of various infectious diseases, of which Legionnaire's disease is one, that they, they tailored their program to sort of watch for in their communities. Um, and so they did use the SAT scan tool to help them identify, and, and in this case, you know, identify in what ended up being this outbreak. But in, insofar as what, you know, ICS is, you know, it's an incident command structure or system um, that's a standardized approach to organizing and coordinating an emergency response in a way that, that really provides a common hierarchy in which responders from a variety of backgrounds or departments can be effective. So public health departments across the United States use the incident command system structure to um, organize their, you know, their employees and mobilize around a response. And activating an ICS is, is really no small task. Um, it, it means the staff have to offer greatly limit their normal responsibilities in order to work on the emergency at hand to fulfill their role in the response effort. So in general, you know, you want to activate as early as you can with an incident response. It, it, it really is an all-hands-on-deck uh, activity. So the, the downside to activating an ICS is that you forego or dramatically reduce other important health department activities that might also need to go on during that emergency situation. I kind of mentioned before about forming those partnerships and they talk about kind of proactively reaching out to people that they had great relationships with. Being part of the workforce and, you know, knowing about some of the job duties that are entailed and responding to things such as infectious disease outbreaks, what kinds of things do you expect in the future? So I know the ICS, like you said, is very entailed. And I know some of the smaller health departments and things like that probably don't have the ability or enough staff to kind of delegate those duties to separate people. So as far as the future is concerned, what do you think some of the expectations may be as far as forming uh, groups like this to respond? Well, yeah, so good question. So the ICS structure can operate at many levels, and that's sort of an important thing to sort of take note here is that for any size health department, if there is an emergency within their jurisdiction, the health department itself will have its own ICS structure to organize its own folks. But there will be representatives from within the health department that will serve on maybe a larger ICS for the, you know, the entire jurisdiction, where the health department might be one representative on a larger um, incident command structure or emergency operations center, for instance, where there are representatives from the police force or the fire department or emergency management, for instance. And I think it, it already is invaluable to be increasingly, you know, important for health department employees and, and staff to have relationships ahead of time with those other partner entities within their jurisdiction so that they each know each other prior to an emergency and can, you know, work with each other effectively if an emergency does come up. So that is sort of like if you want to talk about ICS, do we want to sort of focus on what's happening inside the walls of the health department or their role in participating in a larger ICS structure that the whole jurisdiction might be involved in? But for even for a locally, you know, organized event or emergency or a training or something like that where the public health department might be, you know, implementing its own ICS, regardless of whether something larger is stood up in the jurisdiction, if it's needed or not, it's still is important for, you know, health department personnel 
professional to have relationships um, outside of the health department that they can tap for expertise or contacts during an emergency or transportation issues during an emergency, things like that. And I think those might be the types of things that you're talking about. But a lot of that really entails being proactive on the part of the health department to, to maintain those relationships. There might be a lot of turnover that happens at other organizations or even when, within the health department, but um, maintaining sort of an, an up-to-date Rolodex of people that you can rely on and, and contact during an emergency is, is really invaluable for spreading the, you know, the capacity of the health department to, to help its uh, residents during an emergency. And I definitely agree that you have to work outside of what you're comfortable with. So, you know, health departments need to be comfortable, like you said, outside of the walls of their departments. And my thing is, you know, why wouldn't you want to work with the team? So you have so many different heads with so many different ideas and, and you know, probably solutions to the problems especially when it comes to responding to something that's affecting such a large portion of the population. And so I understand that you work now as an academic consultant for the Fulton County Board of Health. Can you tell me a little bit about your role with them? So I, yeah, that's right. I'm an epidemiologic consultant with the Fulton County Board of Health, and I've been in that role for about a year now. Um, it'll be a year in just a couple of days, actually. It sort of arose out of two sets of circumstances, really, um, one of my own doing and one of the health department side. I guess about a year and a half ago, I was really searching for ways to make my faculty position sort of more applied. I wanted to do something where I felt my research and epidemiologic skills were being more directly utilized to improve public health. And I had also never worked in a state or local public health department before. I already knew that sort of was a, a gap in my resume, so to speak, and I really wanted to get that experience. And so after meeting with um, and brainstorming with a number of colleagues, I ended up in my dean's office, Dean, dean Jim Curran, who is the dean here at the Rollins School of Public Health, and he had just been speaking with Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who is the director of the Fulton County Board of Health. She, at the time, was actually seeking a faculty-level consultant to come work at the health department, so Dean Curran arranged a meeting, and sort of long story short, things worked out, and I've um, been down there at uh, the health department for about a year now. But you know what, in, you know, in terms of my role at Fulton, you know, being informed by the kind of the case study that I did in New York City, I've been thinking about that a lot of recently, recently, especially since you kind of reached out to me about this podcast. And I think it definitely had an impact. I think being able to go to the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene headquarters, interview many of their staff, and really learn the complexities of outbreak investigation and emergency response, it just exposed me really for the first time to life inside a local health department. And granted, DOHMH in New York City is no ordinary local health department, but it still impressed upon me the kind of exciting impact public health professionals can have at a, at a local level. And it really speaks to that case-based learning, which is exactly, you know, what the book is trying to do. You went out there and you lived those experiences. You can, you got to talk to the major players who were a part of the um, response. And I'm sure, and for you too, it made things seem less abstract. Like you had probably read tons of information about the disease, but actually being there, that hands-on experience, like that is, that is so important. And especially in public health, because sometimes people do, you know, stay inside those boxes and you don't even realize what's going on with different groups in your own community sometimes. Right. And you don't realize what how your box relates to other people's boxes. Right. And how what you want to get done impacts how what other people want to get done. And so it really shows you how you need, how and, and why you need to work effectively with people in, quote, those other boxes, whether that's in environmental health or that's 
you know, another division entirely, like the, you know, Department of Buildings or whatever, or the, you know, water, water systems, folks, you know, folks doing, you know, water sanitation type stuff. Like, you really realize what public health's role is in the bigger picture. And so that, I think, was really opened my eyes when I went to New York City. And I thought, you know, gosh, I would like to get more exposure to this. And so that's kind of why I sought out um, this opportunity with Fulton County. So your home institution is Emory University. How has Emory benefited from you working on these projects and definitely working for the uh, Fulton County Board of Health? You know, that's a a great question. So, so, so far for Emory faculty, other faculty at least, I think the greatest benefit is having a colleague that's bedded within a a health department in town um, and a health department down the street. That means that sort of, you know, to date I've facilitated a number of different grant proposals connected my Emory colleagues with Fulton County staff that are knowledgeable on the subjects they're interested in and submitted a couple of conference abstracts related to the work that I do down at Fulton. But this, you know, this has really been a bi-directional benefit. I've also connected my new health department colleagues with experts at, at you know, the Rollins School of Public Health when they've needed or wanted assistance, especially in an area that goes beyond, you know, my scope of knowledge or expertise. You know, but what I sort of like the most is my ability to integrate students into my work down at the health department. Last year, I had three MPH students working on projects with me, um, one of which became an MPH thesis for one of the women. Last this, this year, I currently have two MPH students and one PhD student working with me. And being able to connect students with projects that are you know, not only interesting to them and, and sort of check off boxes for their academic learning, it, you know, it exposes them, again, to the health department atmosphere and what types of things the health department is, you know, grappling with. But it also sort of is of relevance to the health department and getting, getting, you know, tying together what the students need to have done with a programmatic question that the health department wants to answer. Uh, I think it's getting the students involved that is probably the greatest benefit to the school. That was one of the things that I really wish I had done. Graduating with my um, bachelor's and then I got my MPH. And especially with the bachelor's, people are like, oh, are you going to work for the health department? And of course, at the time, I had no idea what I would do, but I didn't even know. And I and I still don't quite know the structures of a lot of the health departments, even the ones that are here locally. And the thing about public health, too, especially talking about community work, there there are so many different roles that are considered public health, but not necessarily identified professionally, you know? Right. And so what are some of the projects that you've been working on at the Board of Health in Fulton County? Last year, uh, I guided a student through a project with Fulton's Emergency Preparedness Division aimed at revamping their points of dispensing or, or pod plan. And then that's a plan that guides where and how the health department will stand up places to distribute countermeasures like antibiotics after a public health emergency. That project helped the county a lot, and, and, and then my student got her thesis out of it. This year, I'm helping with two studies involving secondary data analysis, one that's exploring risk factors for recurrent syphilis among Fulton County residents, and one looking at risk factors for HIV seroconversion among women seeking care at the Fulton County Board of Health. I'm also helping the county implement a survey at two major gay pride events in the fall, the Black Pride Weekend and the Atlanta Pride Festival. So lots of sort of interesting stuff happening with students kind of peppered throughout working on different aspects of these studies, you know, helping either with, uh, you know, getting a practice amount of data cleaning, um, or doing the actual analysis for their thesis. Well, volunteer opportunities for, you know, recruiting participants at uh, these events upcoming this fall where we want to do this survey. So it's nice to be able to sort of get their, them exposed to all different types of, you know, planning, data collect, you know, primary data collection, secondary data analysis and cleaning and things like that. It just gives them a lot more context 
to the stuff they're learning in the classroom. Cool. I like that you guys are, are using pride as a point for gaining more information about HIV and AIDS and some of the behaviors there in Atlanta, because I believe Atlanta has some of the highest rates in the country, right, of HIV yeah. and AIDS? prevalence in the, in the country, I believe, right now. And so that, and that's one of the things that this particular opportunity in the Fulton County Health Department kind of expanded my own area of, you know, of exposure in public health because coming into this position, I, I had not done any research with HIV or AIDS or anything like that or, or you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis and, and none of that. That whole field was, even though I do infectious disease epidemiology, I was focusing on different bugs. And so it's really opened my eyes to that. And because of that, Fulton County, that's where their priorities lie in, in HIV and um, STD prevention. So by virtue of that being their priority, that's where I wanted to, you know, affect the most change and be the most helpful for them. So it's kind of opened up a new avenue of research ideas and, you know, skill sets opportunity that I, you know, even as a faculty member in a school of public health, I had not gotten before. So it's kind of, you know, throughout, through this process, I'm also still learning um, a lot and hoping to, to, you know, be an effective presence on this particular epidemic that's really concerning to Atlanta um, in particular. And so I started out when I was in undergrad, I started out working for our health center there and I focused on HIV and AIDS. And I know, especially in my courses too, there was some difficulty kind of defining. So for example, like uh, MSM, men who have sex with men, because they don't necessarily identify as bisexual or gay. And, you know, the same thing for women, you know, sexuality is, is on a spectrum. So what do you guys do to kind of capture more of that information from those who don't necessarily define themselves or categorize themselves, you know, as gay, lesbian, bisexual, and things of that sort? That's a great, you, you're very knowledgeable about that. And it's, we do address those questions with actually directly asking questions about, you know, what are their sexual behaviors? And that's kind of, and then the post-coding side is where we might, you know, put them into categories of, you know, what types of, you know, what types of sex they have and identifying that way. Because we know that whatever the label is doesn't really matter as much as, you know, what the risk behavior is and, and the, the risk behaviors that are associated or the sexual behaviors that are associated with higher risk. So we really try to ask our questions focusing around sexual behaviors. Even though those are, those are very sensitive questions, that's really how you want to try to start identifying the people that are at greatest risk. So our, our questions do go into some of those more personal aspects of someone's, you know, sexual life, but that's really what's the most important to us as public health, um, you know, uh, practitioners and, and preventionists. Right. And I, I think removing the stigma, uh, especially surrounding the labels and, you know, sexuality is, is a good step in the right direction. And so with your position and, you know, talking about what it means to succeed as a uh, individual in public health, what are some of your ideas of success in regard in regards to the work that you've done? You know, I think my idea of success is to see that both sides of this arrangement, the Fulton County Board of Health and you know, Emory University benefit meaningfully from their investment in this role that I have. Um, and what, quote, benefit meaningfully looks like, you know, I have my own concrete benchmarks like academic papers, target numbers of students that I engage, and grant applications that might leverage the connections that I've helped in some way to build. But, you know, the, the projects I directly assist with, you know, if they can improve public health in Atlanta, and if this sort of how path that I've forged between my academic institution and this local health department can at least turn into a paved two-lane road that might, you know, 
persist for longer than maybe I'm even in this position, that would I, you know, is what I would consider a major success. If I can, you know, really establish the relationships and, and, and get the Fulton County, you know, Board of Health staff to be talking routinely to the Emory University, you know, Rawls School of Public Health faculty and, you know, knowing that they can come to us for quality students to help on projects and that that can sort of be sustained over time, I think that would be a huge success. And there are other, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take lessons from other jurisdictions across the country that are establishing establishing these, you know, academic public health partnerships. You know, there's other wonderful, you know, Knox County, Tennessee is a great example. Um, Seattle County is like the premier example of this. But taking lessons from, from what they've done to ensure that this is successful over time is something that I'm very mindful of and want to not reinvent the wheel where others have been very successful in doing similar types of things. Right. And you're in a great position and a really unique position with a JPHMP. We run a blog site, JPHMP Direct, which is where the podcast will be. And so in trying to target more students, you know, our thing is how can we bridge research and practice? You know, for so long, academia has been separated from the practice components of it. Sometimes it's hard to connect what people know academically with actual practice because those who are practicing are not always you know, up to par on some of the jargon and the, you know, the literature and the the data surrounding the conditions that they are working with, but they, they know the people they're working with. They know the activities that are associated with certain disease outcomes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to be able to be in this role, I'm entering my second year now to have, you know, at least two years in this position to have that longevity that I feel like is, is necessary to ha- start sort of some type of institutional memory on both sides, on both the health department side and the Emory side, to be able to sort of more strategically and thoughtfully place students in roles where I said, you know, okay, here's where we started with the syphilis project, here's maybe our preliminary analysis show, here's where I think you can be helpful in helping us get to this next point, and we can sort of start making um, more impactful um, outcomes by virtue of kind of knowing where things started and knowing where we want them to go. And I think that's what's lost a lot of time when students get, you know, plugged into various practica at health departments is they're there for like, you know, two months, three months, and then they get pulled out, and then there's no one there to sort of tie up the, you know, the what they did and, t- and tied into what needs to be done next. And I feel like that's where I, you know, think my value is is being able to be that like constant conduit to be able to remember what's gone on and, and to show people the ropes and where the, the health department might want to go in the future. But yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think that a lot of people get their degrees in their, you know, the School of Public Health and, you know, some might go work in a health department. And, and after they get in the health department, they do get so busy with what they need to do down there that they might not touch another academic, you know, faculty for another 10 years before they go to a conference or something like right. that. So I think that that's where, you know, where we do have this sort of unfortunate void happening is that we do a great job of training these students and, and while they're here, but then they do lose touch, I think, with academia, and that shouldn't happen. I feel like there's a lot of, of mutual benefit to both sides to maintain those relationships more strongly. Definitely, definitely. And since you do work closely with students, what's some advice you might give a future public health or students who are in public health or students who are going to become future public health workers? If you had to give them one piece of advice or one tip that you wish you would have had, uh, what would you say? 
design a survey. That is the hardest thing to do. You think it's so easy to design a survey, but it is the most useful skill to be able to think through how you want to ask questions, how they're laid on a piece of paper. What is the readability of those questions for your target population? Are you going to get the data that you think you're getting the way you're asking a question? Have you reviewed your survey with a whole bunch of other people to get them to pick it apart? I think that is such a useful skill, and it gives you the, you know, and then if you're going to implement it, you get experience doing first-hand data collection, which I think is invaluable. I, I think along those same lines, encouraging students to do their own data collection at some point during their degree you know, um, ex experience, I just don't think there's any better way to learn than doing that yourself. Whether you're recruiting patients, whether you're out in a festival trying to recruit participants, whether you are interviewing someone during, a, you know, maybe it's a qualitative focus group type scenario, I think all of those experiences are 100 times more valuable than doing secondary data analysis. I just think that you just, you just learn more about the quality of the data and how data is actually produced when you do it yourself. There's subtleties to how you might approach someone to request their participation, and honing those I think are useful even beyond the, you know, the data collection experiences you might have. I think all of those types of things are sort of some of the soft skills that I feel like maybe aren't, aren't as um, explicitly taught to, to students in public health programs as they should be. So getting those, ex those experiences, I think, are just, just like I said, invaluable for, for whatever you go on to do after your MPH or your you know, PhD. Most definitely. Thank you so much, Allison, for joining the show. This has been a great conversation. All right. Thanks a lot. See you later. Bye. Bye. This concludes another episode of Public Health Perspectives. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Allison Chamberlain for joining the show as well as the Fulton County Board of Health and the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I invite you to explore some of the other resources that we have available on JPHMP Direct including a brand new series of case studies geared at public health students and others interested in epidemiology. The series is called Backstories in Epidemiology, True Medical Mysteries, and is edited by the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice, Dr. Lloyd Novick, along with his wife, Carol Novick, and Dr. John Marr, an eminent epidemiologist who served as director of the New York City Bureau of Communicable Diseases during the 1970s. Each month, a new true medical mystery will be published in its entirety on JPHMP Direct. Available now is The World's Deadliest Poison, written by Drs. John Marr and Marcus Horowitz. You'll also find an interview with Dr. Marr on the site where he explains some of the inspiration for the new series and briefly relates the story behind The World's Deadliest Poison. This concludes another episode of Public Health Perspectives. Thanks everyone for listening, and if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to JPHMP Direct so that you never miss any future episodes of the show.